All right. Jude, a bondservant of Jesus Christ and brother of James, to those who are called, sanctified by God the Father, and preserved in Jesus Christ. Mercy, peace, and love be multiplied to you. Beloved, while I was very diligent to write to you concerning our common salvation, I found it necessary to write to you, exhorting you to contend earnestly for the faith which was once for all delivered to the saints. For certain men have crept in unnoticed, who long ago were marked out for this condemnation, ungodly men who turn the grace of our God into lewdness and deny the only Lord God and our Lord Jesus Christ. But I want to remind you, though you once knew this, that the Lord, having saved the people out of the land of Egypt, afterward destroyed those who did not believe, and the angels who did not keep their proper domain, but left their own abode, he has reserved in everlasting chains under darkness for the judgment of the great day, as Sodom and Gomorrah, and the cities around them in a similar manner to have or to these, having given themselves over to sexual morality and gone after strange flesh, are set forth as an example, suffering the vengeance of eternal fire. Likewise, also these dreamers defile the, the flesh, reject authority, and speak evil of dignitaries. Yet Michael, the archangel, in contending with the devil, when he disputed about the body of Moses, dared not bring against him a, a reviling accusation, but said, The Lord rebuke you. But these speak evil of whatever they do not know, and whatever they know naturally, like brute beasts, in these things they corrupt themselves. Woe to them, for they have gone in the way of Cain, have run greedily in the air of Balaam for profit, and perished in the rebellion of Korah. These are spots in your love feasts. While they feast with you without fear, serving only themselves, they are clouds without water, carried about by the winds, late autumn trees without fruit, twice dead, pulled up by the roots, raging waves of the sea, foaming up their own shame, wandering stars, for whom is reserved the blackness of darkness forever. Now Enoch, the seventh from Adam, prophesied about these men also, saying, Behold, the Lord comes with 10,000 of his saints to execute judgment on all, to convict all who are ungodly among them of all their ungodly deeds which they have committed in, in an ungodly way, and of all the harsh things which ungodly sinners have spoken against him. These are grumblers, complainers, walking according to their own lusts, and they mouth great swelling words, flattering people to gain advantage. But you, beloved, Remember the words which were spoken before by the apostles of our Lord Jesus Christ. How they told you there would be mockers in the last time who would walk according to their own ungodly lusts. These are sensual persons who cause divisions, not having the Spirit. But you, beloved, building yourselves up on your most holy faith, praying in the Holy Spirit, keep yourselves in the love of God, looking for the mercy of our Lord Jesus Christ unto eternal life. And on some have compassion, making a distinction, but others save with fear, pulling them out of the fire, hating even the garment defiled by the flesh. Now to him who is able to keep you from stumbling and to present you faultless before the presence of his glory with exceeding joy, to God our Savior, who alone is wise, be glory and majesty, dominion and power, both now and forever. Amen. All right. Good stuff. Jude. Jude. So let's talk about the usual author date. Some interesting considerations in Jude. How we pack so much 
interesting stuff in there is fascinating. And then some of the theological things, and then, of course, the outline. So this Jude, uh, brother of James, he says, and uh, we know him as the half-brother of Jesus. In humility, he identifies himself uh, not as the Lord's brother, but as James's brother, who we know is the half-brother of Jesus. And uh, so Jude is short for Judas, okay? But who wants to be called Judas now? Uh, he's mentioned in Matthew 13, 55, and Mark chapter 6, verse 3, as the brother of Jesus, okay? Uh, initially, like his other brothers, he was not a believer in his eldest brother, Jesus, uh, as John uh, chapter 7, verse 5 indicates. But because of the resurrection, he eventually came around, and I'd say that's a good reason to do that. And uh, so he's uh, there in Acts chapter 1, verse 14. Uh, he's probably one of the Lord's brothers who was a married missionary, uh, referred to in 1 Corinthians 9, 5. Let me read that to you. Maybe you never saw his, his identity in there. But Paul says, Do we have no right to take along a believing wife, as do also the other apostles, the, Lord's, uh, the brothers of the Lord and Cephas? So the, the brothers of the Lord, uh, some of them were missionaries. James was the pastor of Jerusalem, but at least two of his other brothers who had come to faith were missionaries. Missionaries. And they were married, like Peter. So that's some of the good internal evidence that Jude, the half-brother of Jesus, is the author of this epistle. Uh, there's also great external and historical evidence. He's mentioned in what's called the Didache. Has anybody ever heard of the Didache? Yeah, it's, it's an early document about faith and practice for the churches. Uh, some of it's pretty good stuff. There's some interesting things in there. It's very early uh, in church history. It's, and and uh, Jude is mentioned in chapter 2, verse 7 as the author. It's also in the Pseudo-Barnabas writings. Now, Pseudo-Barnabas just means it's not Paul's com missionary companion Barnabas. It's another Barnabas, uh, but he's a later Barnabas. It's in his epistle, chapter 2, verse 10. Uh, the shepherd of Hermas. Um, Polycarp, who was a disciple of John the, uh, the Apostle. He mentions Jude by name in his letter to the Philippians. Many others. It's also found uh, Jude's name is on many of the early uh, manuscripts. The, uh, the Bodmer uh, papyri, which is from around 200 AD, and the Muratorian canon uh, has Jude in there as well. So there's actually quite a bit of evidence for uh, Jude, the half-brother half of Jesus, as the author. When was it written? Most, most people agree about 68, 69 AD. Um, and then in AD 64, uh, scoffers were predicted by Peter in 2 Peter 3.3. 3. He says, scoffers will come. And what did Jude say in verse 18? Remember the apostles told us that scoffers would come. And he's saying, they have come. Okay, And uh, so... And then we think it's before the mention of the, or it's before the destruction of the temple because there's nothing said. So most people think it's smashed in, in there between the destruction of the temple and Peter's epistles. And so they say about 68, 69. Jude? We don't know how Jude was. Yeah. So um, Jesus was about 32 and 32 AD, um, and Mary had about six children. And I don't know which one he is. I think he's mentioned 
last or second to the last, which that would indicate that he was one of the later ones. So maybe he was early 20s um, in 32 AD. So you can do the math. Fair enough. Uh, Yeah, no mystery about the uh, purpose for writing the letter. He just comes out and tells us uh, in verse 2 that um, to contend earnestly for the faith. We'll talk about that a little bit. We'll talk about judgment of apostates and the wicked. Uh, The judgment of the wicked, he says, is an example of how God will judge the the apostates. Okay. Uh, I want to talk about the body of Moses and the prophecy of Enoch. I didn't put prophecy in there, but it's the prophecy of Enoch. Uh, The creepy thing about Moses' body, it is such a weird passage. And then the prophecy of Enoch. We'll get to that. So um, his his motive, he says, I found it necessary, verse 3, rather not 2, I found it necessary to write to you, exhorting you to contend earnestly for the faith. To contend earnestly for the faith. That's the reason he's writing this. And of course, it's in light of uh, so much of the apostasy that was going on. So now by faith, uh, he doesn't mean just faith in general. Uh, He means the Christian faith. The phrase is preceded even in the Greek by the definite article. It's the faith. So we're talking about the gospel, the new covenant, you know, the birth, life, death, resurrection, ascension, return, and glory of Christ. The faith that was once delivered uh, to the saints. That's what it is. He will come, he will judge the living and the dead, the righteous and the wicked. This is the gospel we're talking about, the faith. Um, it's interesting that when you go through the, uh, the teachings of Christ, the teachings of the apostles, there's never one exhortation for Christians to remain passive when it comes to preaching the gospel, defending the truth, and resisting evil. So what is our problem today? Why are we the decent people in the world that say so little about important matters? Yeah, I don't, I don't get it. We have no imperative, no command from Christ or the apostles to go into a passive Christianity. Christianity is an assertive, proclaiming, uh, moving forward faith. Uh, it is a proselytizing, evangelizing, uh, propagating kind of faith. Amen? That's what it is. Uh, Jesus' parables demonstrate that. Uh, we have the yeast in the dough. What does the yeast do? It spreads. That's right. It spreads. And that's what we're supposed to be doing, going into all the world. And um, everything is about veritas. It's about the truth. So we have to contend uh, with it. And what we contend with, of course, is with darkness. And as we know about the nature of light, light just shines. There's no passive nature in light, right? Last time I checked. And Jesus says we're the light of the world and nobody lights a lamp and hides it under a bushel. Okay, but we hold it up high for all to see. And uh, he's talking about speaking. He's talking about doing good works. And uh, so where has the church gone? The, uh, the exhortation from Jude is really strong. The word he uses is epigonizomai. Uh, the root word means, like we get our word agonize from it. But in the original language, it means really to really to strive hard, to compete for the prize, to fight, to win, agonizing to victory. Contend earnestly so that the faith would prevail, the truth would be victorious. Okay, yeah. And then in here, his, his, this exhortation of contending, uh, it doesn't mean to be contentious, but for contending, to fighting for victory, 
he says it's because of all these problems and the list it seems to never end. He mentions a couple, he gives some commentary. He mentions a few more, he gives commentary. So ungodly men, he says, initially have crept into the fellowship of the church and uh, they turn the grace of God into lewdness. Okay? They're corrupting the grace of God. They're in our midst. He says later, they're spots, they're blemishes in your love feasts, your agape feasts. He says they deny the Lord God, the Lord Jesus Christ. The, the, to deny there means to disown, to disown. And they, he says they defile the flesh. list goes on. They reject authority. They speak evil of dignitaries. Uh, some translations, uh, the word for dignitary there is translated as something related to like angelic hosts. And he gives an example. They speak evil of whatever they do not know. Verse 10, they corrupt themselves. They're greedy for money. They're self-serving. This is my favorite. They're grumblers, complainers. Uh, no shortage of those. Got to watch myself. Uh, walk according to their own lust, verse 16. Always seeking advantage over others. They're mockers. Remember he said, the apostles. Now, mind you, that's important too in the text. He does not claim to be an apostle, but he speaks about the apostles. And he says, and they prophesied, and they warned us about mockers. And he says, they're here. They're here. They're sensual persons, divisive persons, and they're void of the Holy Spirit. Okay. Um, yeah. And what he's saying is that the, all of the evidence now is in, and they're not saved. At first, they were with us, among us. They were eating with us, celebrating with us, worshiping with us. But at the end of the day, they proved that there was the fruit of salvation was not present. They're void of the Spirit, verse 19. They've disavowed, or not, they've disowned uh, the Lord, rejecting Him, the one who purchased them with His blood. And so this is, the, this is what a true apostate is. Okay, a true apostate. They've come to know the truth of the gospel. They've entertained the life of, of a Christian. They've enjoyed the benefits of the Christian community. And, uh, but because they were not converted in the soul, they fell away and then became, as Peter would say, worse off, become worse off. The former, the latter is worse than the former. And, uh, and it says in verse four, God knowing this from eternal past has marked out their condemnation, marked it out. Yeah, he put it out there in advance. So judgment is coming. Um, and then there's this, he discusses the judgment, the, um, the wicked, the apostate, uh, the apostate will be judged in similar manner to the wicked. Uh, it's for those who deny the Lord. He talks about angels who rebelled, verse 6. There's no small controversy over uh, who, what the exact identity of these angels are. Uh, Peter mentions them. They perhaps are mentioned in the book of Revelation. Um, I'm not super confident on knowing the exact identity of them. Uh, some say it's the problem mentioned in Genesis chapter 6, uh, but there's so many, um, there's a lot of debate over what the sons of God were, the Bar Elohim, and then the, the, the product being the Nephilim, the giants, and so forth. Um, it seems to be very demonic in nature, and so are those the angels that God judged before the flood? Um, could be. Uh, Revelation discusses some angels that are in the Euphrates River 
who have basically been chained there and then let loose for a time to judge humanity, unbelieving humanity. If that's not freaky, I don't know what is. And um, so anyway, he mentions the people of Sodom and Gomorrah, um, and then they being like Cain, Balaam, and the rebels at Korah, who, when the earth got hungry, uh, had a snack of them. Verse 11. All right, let's talk about some of this interesting stuff. How many guys have read that and, and you just, what? Yeah. So what's with the body of Moses? Uh, Jude 9, Jude says, Yet Michael the archangel, in contending with the devil, when he disputed about the body of Moses, dared not bring against him a reviling accusation, but said, the Lord rebuke you. Now, there's a context to this. Okay, The context in this verse is contrasting the godly character of Michael with these ungodly persons who reject authority and speak evil of dignitaries. Okay, um, Michael upholds his godly integrity by not saying anything against Satan, but says the Lord rebuke you. But that's not what catches our eye, is it? That's what should catch our eye, because that's the point that Jude is making. But because we don't have any other information about this thing about Moses' body, uh, that's the thing that we want to figure out. So, but don't miss what Jude's point is. Okay, We'll come back to it in, in just a minute. Um, yeah, it's the peculiar thing that we're interested in. They were Michael, the archangel, uh, Satan, the, the chief, we might say the chief demon, uh, were fighting. They were fighting over the body of Moses. And apparently Satan had some nefarious um, intentions for it. What? I have no idea. I've heard, you know, Chuck Missler always has an interpretation of something, and he gives his. I'm not sure it's worth restating. Uh, he says, as he says of most things, it's a conjecture of mine. Uh, but, you know, search the scriptures daily to see if what I'm saying is true. Um, but yeah, there was a dispute over Moses' body, his corpse. Now Moses died in Deuteronomy 34, verse 6, and the Lord, the Lord buried, buried him in an undisclosed location to humans, to people. But apparently Satan knew where the body was, um, and uh, Michael was there to make sure that Satan didn't run off with it. The body snatcher, okay? Yeah. Now, Jude's statement is similar uh, to a Jewish oral tradition uh, in a document called the, the Pseudographica. Uh, it's a body of literature, the pseudo fake, fake writings, meaning they're not scripture. And uh, in, in the document that that's recorded is, is the assumption of Moses. It's not the same, uh, but there's some similarities. Now, the, the, the truth of the story or at least portions of it were known by the early Jews, but God never saw fit to uh, put the true account uh, into the scriptures until Jude wrote. Um, I'm not sure why he didn't do it back in Deuteronomy. Maybe he wanted the Jews to sleep good at night, because I wouldn't want to know that Satan was body snatching, would you? Uh, maybe that's why it wasn't recorded. Uh, some earlier prophet of the Old Testament had probably mentioned the incident, and then it made its way into the pseudographica and oral tradition. Um, but the story, uh, by then, it didn't take long to get convoluted. So, but for whatever reason, uh, in the story here, uh, we know why it's Michael's character is in the story. Um, 
But the issue of Moses' body is just very interesting. So, so back to the point about Michael. He was unwilling to sacrifice his character by um, reviling Satan, even though Satan was the supreme rebel against God. Uh, he is the, the one who drew a third of the angels out of uh, loyal, away, you know, away from loyalty to God. And he's the one who has the demise of humanity in mind. And even to that despicable person, Michael would not bring a reviling accusation against him. But he left it all in the Lord's hands. That's a good reminder when it comes to those in power and dignitaries. Michael serves as an example to us. So, yeah. But nonetheless, I wish I knew what the body snatching was about. And uh, I'm tempted to tell you what Missler says, but I'm going to keep it to myself. So, what about the prophecy of Enoch? Uh, not as weird, but it is intriguing. Uh, Jude 1, 14 through 15. Uh, Jude was the seventh male uh, listed in Adam's genealogy. Uh, Genesis 5.18. So the prophecy from Enoch was given almost 6,000 years ago, and it was given prior to, excuse me, to the flood, to the flood. And the prophecy here is predicting the second coming of the Lord um, when he comes with his saints to judge the ungodly. Yeah. You think Enoch would have been concerned with the judgment of the flood, but he's, God revealed to him the judgment of the last day. It's interesting stuff. That's Revelation 19 and 20 stuff. So in Genesis 5, we have predictions about the very end. So from the beginning to the end, just like Genesis 3.15 about the promise of Messiah being victorious over Satan uh, is mentioned in chapter 3, verse 15. And we see the totality or the consummation of that at the end of uh, chapter 20 and then into 21 where Satan is forever removed and cast into the lake of fire. And it's going to be sweet. So, um, This also, just like the, the, the issue with Michael and Satan arguing over Moses' body, it's not mentioned anywhere else but Jude. And then the prophecy of Enoch is only mentioned um, in Jude. So uh, what should be said is there's a similar statement in the apocryphal book of Enoch. It's not identical either. Chapter 1, verse 9, and uh, the book of Enoch was written uh, about 100, a little over 100 BC. Uh, so it may have been another thing that was uh, mentioned or passed along by one of the, the latter Old Testament prophets like Malachi. And then, of course, the people hearing that then developed a basically a legend behind it. And then you have you know, the book of Enoch. Uh, but then the Holy Spirit inspired the, the real story, and uh, Jude inscripturated it for us, as it were. So uh, there's also some other interesting details about Enoch I think that we shouldn't ignore. Uh, Genesis 5.24 says that Enoch walked with God and was not, for God took him. So there is something unique about Enoch, his faith, his walk with God. Uh, he was raptured before the flood. Okay, he's the pre-rapture rapture. Okay, and uh, definitely pre-wrath rapture. Uh, God does not execute His wrath against the righteous. Of course, Noah and his family were preserved through the wrath, but Enoch was completely removed from it. And of course, guys like me would say that Enoch is 
uh, a picture of the church, and uh, Noah and his family are a picture of the Jews going through the tribulation. I'll get into all, well, I I might get into that stuff. I'm not a big picture guy. Uh, I think we have to be careful when the scriptures don't say this is a picture, because then it's just conjecture. So, Also, Enoch is mentioned in Hebrews 11, 5, and 6 as an extraordinary man of faith. Uh, It says, by faith, Enoch was taken away so that he did not see death and was not found because God had taken him. For before he was taken, he had this testimony that he pleased God. And then we have this statement that we quote without keeping in mind that it's a trailer to what was said about Enoch. It says, but without faith, it is impossible to please God. Okay, For he who comes to God must believe that he is and that he's a reward of those who diligently seek them. The testimony about Enoch was that he pleased God. And then the author of Hebrews says, but without faith, it's impossible to please him. So I would say that if Enoch walked that closely with God, it should be no surprise that he received uh, revelation from God. So anyway, Moses and Enoch. I wonder what Moses will have to say about that dispute. Let's talk about some of the theological contributions here. Good stuff. Uh, These doctrines are by no means uh, new, uh, but I think that they're stated um, clearly, concisely in the book of Jude. Um, Yeah, it's held in contrast to apostasy, um, those that disown Christ. So let me look at the first one with you, uh, or all three of them here real quick. Uh, The doctrine of preservation, or keeping, guarding, verse 1. Uh, also in verse 24, is he keeps us from stumbling, God does, and then he will present us faultless, present us faultless, verse 24. So for the first one, um, preserved in Jesus Christ, Jude 1.1 says, he's a bondservant of Jesus Christ, a brother of James, so those who are called sanctified by God the Father and preserved, preserved in Jesus Christ. Other translations say kept safe, okay? That's the NLT, kept for, that's NIV, NASB, ESV, okay? The word preserved is used of a guard who watches over a prisoner, or they could be watching over anything. Um, It's something special that's being saved, okay? When uh, Mary saved the vial of ointment for Jesus' feet, she kept it. She, She hid it and kept it safe. For something special, and uh, and she kept it for something very special, uh, indeed, for the death of Christ. Um, it's used of of God's people being protected from the devil. What's uh, worth noting is the word is in the, the 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 perfect tense in the passive voice. Passive voice meaning uh, that we didn't we do not preserve or keep ourselves. That's something that Christ does. The perfect tense, meaning that God started keeping us safe in the past, and that would be theologically the day of our salvation, and he continues to keep us in the present. That's the perfect tense in the Greek. Happened in the past, and it's continuing on in the present. Okay? Yeah, so the preservation of the believer is the work of God alone. Also, Jude 1.24, he says, Now to him who is able to keep you from stumbling, and he goes on to say, and to present you, but keep you, um, so here it says the Lord's able to do two things, keep us and present us. 
Now, as far as the word uh, to keep is concerned, it's similar to the one that he uses earlier in verse 1, but they're two different Greek words. This word to keep means to guard, to protect, to maintain something. Uh, Peter says something similar about believers. He says, who are kept by the power of God through faith for salvation, ready to be revealed in the last time, 1 Peter 1.5. The word in 1 Peter means that our salvation is garrisoned, our salvation. It's garrisoned by the power of Almighty God. The moment we believe in the gospel, if he saved you, he will keep you, and he is keeping you. Okay? If someone falls away, uh, disowning Christ, uh, or never displaying the fruit of Christ, they were never saved. Of such people, Jesus said, I never knew you. Depart from me, you worker of iniquity or lawlessness. Now here in the text of Jude, the Lord is able to keep us and protect us from stumbling out of the faith. Now that's always the appearance of what an apostate does. But they haven't apostated out of being born again. They've just apostated from the community of Christ, a profession perhaps, and those sorts of things. But the Lord keeps those who are his. Keep us from falling away. He's the one that secures our footing. Uh, what I've always found interesting in this, the whole doctrine of keeping and preservation is the text never says that he helps us keep our footing. That's not what it says. As if it were, you know, partly by my own strength and partly by his strength that I'm kept. Okay. How many days have you noticed that if it wasn't all him, it would be nothing? Okay. <laughs> yeah, it's the Lord who keeps our footing for us. The other thing that the text says that he's able to do is present us faultless before the presence of his glory. Won't that be nice? He's the one. He'll present us faultless, blameless, above reproach, uh, well-pleasing in his sight. Um, of course, through the work of Christ at the atonement and then the work of sanctification by the Spirit. The word present means to uphold, to establish, to stand, or even to cause to stand. The cause to stand. And that's probably uh, the intent here of the use of the word and the way it's used. He causes us to stand. And I love this because in Romans 14, 4, uh, Paul says that God is able to make the immature believer stand. He says to the mature, he says, leave them alone. Because, you know, they, they're into petty things. You know, the scruples of the weak. And he says to the mature, just, just relax, you guys. God is able to make them stand. He will establish them. They belong to him. He'll take care of them. So nurture the immature, the weak, disciple them, love on them, but don't get too worried about it. Okay? I got enough things to worry about anyway. So it's God who causes us to stand. And that's held in contrast to us causing ourselves to stand, which leads to a fall. He who thinks he stands, Paul says, should beware lest he fall, 1 Corinthians 10, 12. Okay. Yeah. Now I think that's all so important because we're not able in our own strength to keep ourselves from apostasy or to cause ourselves to stand before him faultless. As we've been talking about in Galatians, uh, Jesus is responsible for our salvation and for our sanctification. Uh, we must trust him, and we must, by his grace, obey him, but he alone saves, he alone sanctifies. And uh, 
trust me, we, we are not presenting ourselves on Judgment Day in a satisfying way to the Father. Uh, you know the whole mystical text in Ephesians 5 about the, the marriage relationship being like the relationship of Christ and the church. And it says that he, by his word, is sanctifying the church so that he might present her to himself spotless and without blame on that day. He's going to do it. He's going to do it. So trust him, walk in his grace. And um, I mean, what else could you do anyway? Amen. Yeah. He preserves, protects, and he presents for his own glory. So he keeps us. He'll present us. Um, <clears throat> in line with this, because I believe that Jude is uh, commenting on Jesus's theology. And listen to the Lord. We should listen to the Lord anyway. Amen. Jesus declared, all that the Father gives me will come to me. And the one who comes to me, I will by no means cast out. This is the will of the Father who sent me, that of all he has given me, I should lose nothing, but should raise it up on the last day. John 6, 37 and 39. And then my favorite one is, Jesus says, my sheep hear my voice and I know them and they follow me and I give them eternal life and they shall never perish. Neither shall anyone snatch them out of my hand. My Father who has given them to me is greater than all, and no one is able to snatch them out of my Father's hand. I and my Father are one, John 10, 27 through 30. He says, they'll never perish. I've given them eternal life. I was telling Roger today, I said, how long can you have eternal life? Temporarily? <laughs> yeah. So I think that Jude is commenting on Jesus' theology on preservation. All right, let's look at the outline and we'll be done. It's real quick. It's real easy. Um, yeah, I, I ran with this one like I stole it because I did. Uh, the salutation, there's preservation from apostasy. Okay, he will keep us. Exhortation, warning about apostasy, verse 3 through 23. And then in the benediction is the victory over apostasy. He will present us spotless, faultless, above reproach for his glory. There you have it. All right. If you have any questions, I'll be available afterward. Next week, we'll get into Revelation. No promises that we'll do it in one um, night, but then I'll do an overview of all of biblical eschatology, and hopefully it'll... Uh, I think big picture stuff is, is helpful. So when you get caught up in the trees, that's where the debate and the fighting begins, even those who agree uh, on the majority of things. So... I think the trees are a great discussion, but I think the point is like is much like the parables of Jesus. When you start breaking them down too finely, uh, it breaks down, and then people come up with strange ideas, theology. But the overall big picture has great clarity, and I think it's a great encouragement to us. So why don't you stand up and we'll pray. Well, Lord, thank you for the book of Jude. And Lord, it's because of the declarations of Jude, of course, mostly from your own mouth, Lord, that you saved me and you're keeping me and you will present me to yourself. And in the end, I will not be able to take credit for any of it. And um, thank you for loving all of us, Lord, like that. And um, so, Lord, I just pray that we would be encouraged by that that we would follow hard after you, our love for you. 
Lord, being the recipients, the students of your grace. And, um, and Lord, that as uh, Jude exhorts us that we would be good contenders for the faith, that, Lord, there's a crown set before us, and uh, we want to fight for victory. And so, Lord, help us not to be passive Christians, but to be involved, to be speaking, to be encouraging, to be pointing out error graciously, speaking the truth in love. Um, but Lord, whatever we do, help us to be good ambassadors, ambassadors who represent and speak. And uh, so, Lord, thank you for my church family. I just pray that you bless these guys, love on them in Jesus' name. Amen.